Almost exactly a year ago, in April 2022, Alta took NERSA or the National Energy Regulator of South Africa to court to force them to review and set aside a decision to grant car powership three independent power producer generation licenses. NERSA granted these licenses for a period of 20 years despite the fact that Car Powership won a bid for supplying emergency electricity. Car Powership lacked a host of required approvals, like environmental and ports authority approvals, and a power purchase agreement with ESCOM. The three ships are supposed to generate around 1,200 megawatts of electricity to feed into South Africa's grid. That is equal to about one stage of load shedding. In the last few weeks, we at Alta have seen a renewed push for car power ships by political leaders such as Minister Gwede Mantash, President Cyril Ramaphosa and even the EFF's Floyd Shivambu. In this episode of Alta Insights, we want to tell you the story of Brazil, another country where car powership won a bid to supply so-called emergency power. I'm Ilse Salzvedel, this is Alta Insights, and today I'm joined by Nicole Figueiredo de Oliveira from the Brazilian NGO Arayara, as well as Alta's advocate Stefani Fick and Brendan Slade, Legal Project Manager at Outtown. Nicole, please tell us a bit more about your NGO. What exactly is it that Arayada is doing in Brazil? Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Arayada is an NGO environmentalist who defends life and uh, rights in all of its forms. We do also litigation in Brazil, so we take companies and sometimes governments to court. Um, and we also do mobilization, information, we do technical analysis, everything to protect communities from uh, projects such as car powership. And uh, regarding car powership, they arrived in 2020, at the end of 2021, uh, in Brazil in an emergency auction where there was supposed to be a drought that was going to create some uh, generation problems here because our matrix is basically hydro. And when there's not enough rain, there's the same problems as, as South Africa is facing with lack of energy generation. So car powership... Um, enrolled for an auction and it's interesting because the auction happened and they created a company in brazil four days before the auction and within four days they were accepted by the government to participate on this auction um, putting uh, four floating gas power plants in sepetiba bay in the state of rio de janeiro which some of you might have heard of and this place, Sepetiba Bay, is a very delicate place with great dolphins and 30,000 uh, artisanal fishers who depend on, the, on this bay to survive. Um, and with the coming of this floating power plant, not only the bay was going to be compromised, but also Atlantic forests and mangroves that were going to be 
disforested to pass on the transmission lines. So it was a project that uh, in this in this emergency auction, it was not only car power ship, there were other companies, but they were the only ones coming with floating power plants. How easy is it for you as an NGO to try and intervene in this? Because in South Africa, Stefani and Brendan um, will attest to this. We have to go to court to get government's attention on this. But is it easy um, to, to go after such a project without fear or favor in Brazil or not really? It's very hard, actually, because um, the process was very fast. The information was not available online. We had to ask many, many times for the government to give us access to information. The environmental licensing process was speeding through. Uh, they didn't even, they waived the car power ship of doing an environmental assessment, in, uh, environmental impact assessment. So there were not enough studies to actually know the impacts that this was going to have on the bay. Uh, and Brazil is a country that has been killing activists for many decades. In the uh, Witness International list of defenders assassination, Brazil has been ranking for many, many years on top of the top five list of most uh, murdered activists. And um, of course, people are also being criminalized, which is the case of what's happening in Brazil right now. And um, within the, go the government of Rio de Janeiro, it's even more difficult because the, the project was supposed to be licensed by the federal government, but actually they delegated to the state agency, uh, which made it more difficult for us to uh, access information and question it. So we had to go to court as well. Uh, the court is the safest place for us to be, but we don't only do court actions. We also work with communities and we do awareness raising and a lot of communication and information spreading. So we did public hearings and uh, some articles, lots of articles in the press, lots of interviews. And what happened is they are using car powership is using my words and the interviews I gave against me to criminalize me. So they are trying to give me prison time for uh, defamation and a lot of uh, accusations that are actually not founded. Uh, so we are defending ourselves right now at the courts as well. Um, but at least I'm, you know, doing this from my house and not from a prison. Sure. It's very, very concerning. Stefani and Brendan, uh, comment from your side. I think it is very concerning. I mean, we are now struggling with a with a process in order to, you know, ask a court to review the decision of NERSA to give car power ship um, um, generation licenses. And we sort of see the same thing. It's, we, um, you know, we are struggling to get the information, you know, on what information that NERSA based their decision. So it's exact sort of, it's copy and paste, struggling to get the information. We are still in court with interlocutory applications, trying to get the information. Because, you know, one of the things that is really bothering us is, um, you know, the affordability of this 20-year deal that is going to cost us, at the time when we started this um, application, $200 billion. 
Now, we know that the Ukraine war happened in the meantime. Um, the Rand dollar exchange rate crashed because of various other things. So this is probably going to cost us more in the region of 500 billion Rand, which is an enormous amount of money. And then the question if 20 years is really an emergency um, situation. And, and may I also just mention is that we all know that, you know, there are all of a sudden everybody's getting on a, on a platform saying, you know, car power ship is a good idea, um, despite the fact that they did not get their environmental licenses and, 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 and that there are uh, appeal process going on, um, is that various ministers has now sort of alluded to the fact that your car power ship is, is actually a great idea. And you wonder about the political interference. This is a very serious matter, but, um, you know, jokingly, I think this is costing, um, uh, you know, the, the, the company an enormous amount of money because someone is getting paid. And, um, you know, who's going to pay for this at the end? Taxpayers, you know, us ordinary South Africans. I'm very interested to hear how fast they managed to roll out these ships, Nicole, because in South Africa's case, we, Brendan, you can come in here and correct me if I'm wrong, but in South Africa's case, we don't even have the capacity to put the ships into production in a matter of a few weeks. It will take months. I think the last time we spoke, it will take close to 18 months, and we don't have the capacity to connect it to the grid. So... Brendan, um, firstly, am I correct? Uh, yes, Ilza, you are correct on that point. However, that is one of many factors. So the grid capacity is one thing, and there is currently rhetoric or debate in the public sphere in South Africa at the moment that certain grid capacity is being granted in the form of a directive. So we don't exactly know what's going on in that space, but we are definitely keeping an eye on this issue as it unfolds. So the other rhetoric that is doing the rounds on, on social media, actually coming from, from um, our politicians' mouths as well, is that the notion of car powership will solve load shedding. So just to put that into perspective, a stage of load shedding means that we are in the deficit of, of generation capacity um, about a thousand megawatts. So the total generation capacity or the total electricity that car powership can produce in terms of the um, procurement program, in terms of which they were awarded preferred bidder status, is around 1,200. So at the very least, car powership may alleviate one stage of load shedding. So the rhetoric is, is being peddled that this is the biggest savior of our energy crisis as, as we face it currently. And um, unfortunately, this is used as a political football to be pushed through right ahead. And as, as Stefani stated, and as um, Nicole also alluded to, we unfortunately need to revert to the courts in order to fight this. In an open, transparent, democratic society, we would not have been in that position to go to court. But here we are, unfortunately, and our litigation, as far as the generation licenses are concerned, is still pending. Okay, Nicole, can you tell us a bit more about the rollout there on your side? How quickly did they uh, get the ships and the platforms there? Um, how quickly was it connected to the grid? Because from what you've told us, 
it's clear that they also didn't use the correct procurement measures. You said that they started or founded a company four days before the auction. Uh, We know that there's a car power ship South African company here as well. But please take us through um, the process on your side. So the ships took more than the time that was required in the contract to be implemented. They had about eight months and it took a little bit less than a year. So it took about 11 months for the ships to be installed, tested and started delivering energy. The transmission line was built uh, in the water and then crossing through mangroves and Atlantic forest. The, um, the thing is that the ships were already waiting near the bay even before the license was given. Sure. So they were, they were not, they were counting on the license and they were pretty sure the license was going to come because the ships were there and we have evidence to prove that. Um, and at the same time, what happened is that I don't know if South Africa is the same, but here they do a ship to ship operation. So both ships, they're just anchored. They're not attached to any platforms or anything. It's just a ship on the bay and then they transfer gas from the regasification ship into the power plant, which is extremely dangerous. It's prohibited by legislation in Brazil to do this uh, to a certain distance from the coast. It's 20 kilometers um, and they are much closer to the coast. And this is prohibited because it's dangerous to have an accident, to have an explosion um, and kill a lot of people who live and work and you know exist in the bay. So uh, it took about 11 months, but I don't know if it's the same situation in South Africa. I'll ask Brendan to comment on that just now, but just tell me what has it done so far to the fishing community and to the the marine life in those bays, or in that bay? Yeah, so these ships, they create what's called an exclusion zone. So it's a place that fishers cannot even come close to, Uh, to fish or to sail or anything. And this exclusion zone covers exactly where the most abundant fish are. And the places now that are available for the fishers to fish don't have fish because actually mangroves are the birthplace of fish and that's where they reproduce. And because the power plants were placed right in front of the mangroves, um, the exclusion zone coincides with the place where there's fish. So there's a big impact on the amount of fish that is being able to fish. Uh, fishers have been fined by the Navy and they have been facing some intimidation from both the company and the Navy because of this exclusion zone. So it's very serious. Has it created uh, a loss of income? Is it measurable at this stage? I don't have the numbers, but it has created a loss of income. Stefania and Brendan, what are you hearing here? Are you hearing the same sort of things that we are warning against in South Africa and that an organization like Green Connection is warning about? Yeah, I think so. It's, you know, you get a feeling of deja vu if you listen to, to, to the story. But I think the only thing that counted in our favor is that the, the car power ship is actually struggling to get environmental authorizations because of also activists like Green Connection, Liz uh, McDade, etc. 
but you know coming back to what we are hearing from from various media platforms is that they are going out of their way for example to you know giving instructions that um one of the licenses were denied because there weren't space in the harbour. Um, Charles had already saved that spot for something else and there was an instruction, but, you know, make a plan. And, you know, you just wonder how long the department um, will hold out on not giving the environmental um, authorizations um, and that hopefully they are not successful. Um, that brings us back to our application and that's why we we tackled nurser who is the regulator who who needs to look at all the evidence and then decide whether they you know can give or should give a generation license now how do you give a generation license to a company who who is not even sure that they're going to get in, in environmental authorization um authorizations from the um from the department so it really it's like sitting here and listening um, to um, you know sort of uh, it's as if they have a recipe of what they do when they come in and sort of bombard and and, and just make sure it's like you know we're going to make it happen despite what anybody else um, is saying. Brendan, thank you, Ilza. Yes, just to uh, come back to what Nicole said earlier about the ships literally being ready to come and moor in the Brazilian ports. We we have not got ships on our horizon just yet, so that's that's kind of a, a good sign for South Africa. But we just need to go back to, to why are we talking about car power ship in the first place. So first off, it was a bid process for emergency power to come online as quick as possible. So we are now roughly two, three years down the line. So literally the ship has sailed for this to be an emergency anymore. And the other question or, or, or rather the misconception is that car power ship is basically a plug and play solution to get power to the grid as soon as possible. Our president told our parliament last week that we need to get those megawatts installed as soon as possible. It is unfortunately not that simple. First off, we've got various core challenges against the, if I can say it in, in, in those terms, against the car power ship deal, um, Alta's review application being one of them. Obviously, there's then the issue of the finance housing and car power ship entities reaching financial closure. That has not happened yet. Then there's the question of the infrastructure and the power lines and utilities that need to be built first so that the LNG gas coming in can be turned into power at the end of the day. Then there's the question of, of manpower, boots on the ground, the teams that need to do the operational works. That's not even close to being complete. And then there's also the issue of the actual agreement. So Car Powership needs to enter into a power purchase agreement with ESCOM in order for it to generate, well, to legally generate electricity at the end of the day. But because Alta's um, application is so important, if car power ship does not have the generation licenses to generate electricity, any subsequent agreements would, as, as they call in legal terms, would not have a cause to proceed. So without a generation license, car power ship 
would not be able to generate electricity. So this is also important from a South African perspective on why every single front of this car powership deal needs to be challenged. Nicole, can you tell us a bit more about Brazil's uh, energy situation? How dire was your situation when car power ships uh, were called in? Was it also an, is a so-called emergency deal or what was the situation when they won the auction? The auction was actually made when there was a drought, but in the next year, the following year, it rained a lot. So all the reservoirs were full and there were no needs for emergency auction anymore. So it doesn't justify to have a company generating energy seven times more expensive than the other uh, auctions in an emergency situation that doesn't exist anymore. Luckily, we are not facing the dire situation South Africa is facing with, uh, with load shedding, but we, uh, and then we have enough uh, hydro and there's growing investment in solar and wind enough that we don't need new power plants. And I want to quickly say something about the ready, the plug and play uh, solution, which is what's so called solution. These power plants, they not only are not plug and play because as I said, it takes about a year to be, to install and be ready and start delivering. It puts people at risk, but it also doesn't create an asset for the country. So if car power ship wants to take their ships and leave, they can do it. And, and South Africa or Brazil will be without this asset built. And it doesn't generate a lot of jobs either because actually when you build a power plant, there is construction worker jobs that could be created. Uh, it doesn't generate uh, as many jobs as a renewable project, for example, we know that. But uh, with the car power ship case in Brazil, uh, most of the crew is Turkish and they came from Turkey. So we didn't generate a lot of jobs in Brazil. And when we research the company data in the labor ministry, they only have five people registered and they're all the directors. Uh, everybody else is foreign crew. So sure. it doesn't help the country either. It's not just about energy. It's also about how does it develop the country. So in what I'm hearing from you is misleading information, just like in the case of South Africa, they are telling the fishermen in those harbors that it will not affect the marine life. It will not affect the fishing license at all. We've heard from people on the ground in Saldana and we've seen some editorials in newspapers that an organization like Alta is just against the creation of jobs and we've warned that they will probably bring in their own people and employ very few local people. And what I'm hearing is um, no procurement procedures were followed or it wasn't followed to the T. Can you tell us what is the, the length of the contracts? How long are you still going to be stuck with these car power ships in Brazil? And also, what's the monetary value? You referred to being seven times more expensive than other competitors. But how, how much is it in monetary value and how much does it or what does it do to electricity prices in Brazil? What does the man on the street have to pay for the luxury of this contract? For us, the highest cost of this contract is the tariff cost for the population. So the Brazilians already have energy is very expensive in Brazil. 
more than 60% of the Brazilians already uh, don't pay, stop paying a certain um, expense to pay for their electricity bill. Um, so people are stop paying education or they don't buy a certain type of food or, or so on, so they can pay their electricity bill. This emergency contracts that seven times higher will increase about 20% of tariffs, which means this will increase poverty, this will increase uh, the leaving people, people leaving education. So this will impact social, um, so the social situation and economic situation in Brazil even further. And how long are you or are the contracts for? Also 10 or 20 years? 10 years, which is strange because an emergency, it doesn't last 10 years, should never last 10 years because the government should actually have plans for uh, how to address emergency situations, how to be prepared for droughts, how to diversify energy generation, and it shouldn't have 10, 20 years contracts. Nicole, is it safe to assume that there's political interference here? Because that's what we are seeing or sensing in South Africa, that there are uh, people behind the scenes that are very keen to push through the, the car power ships deals for political reasons. What's your take on this? And then Brendan and Stefania, I would love to hear from you as well. What I can say is that there are um, procedures that have been strange. So there are court orders that have been sustained by that, the tribunal. And then the president of the tribunal dismissed the decision of one of the judges. There have been decisions that were changed. So the Electric Energy Agency made a decision to cancel the contracts at the end of the year last year. And then they review their decision and now it's pending since more than six months to review a simple decision. So there have been uh, procedures that could be faster, that were slower, uh, courts that have reviewed their own sentences and um, the, even the, the state of Rio waiving the environmental impact assessment, uh, there is a sentence uh, from 2006 that actually prohibits the state to do that. So they even went against a court decision that is already long gone. It cannot be reviewed anymore because it went through all the instances and they went against it. So it, to me, this is at least strange. So you can take your own conclusions about interference or not. And dare we use the word corruption, or are you not comfortable in discussing that here? Well, the thing is that um, I'm already being criminalized for saying that they did not fulfill a, a court order, which is true. Uh, so I cannot say that openly, but I can state the facts and people can conclude whatever they want from this strangeness. <laughs> okay, Brendan and Stefani, your view? Yeah, the strangeness. I like that because it is. It's sometimes you can just ask why is this happening. In South Africa, we, we sit with the problem that we have a serious shortage of electricity, like um, Brendan has explained. And this is mainly due to mismanagement, maladministration, corruption. We had the whole Zondo Commission where it was clear that ESCOM you know, and PRASA and all the other state-owned entities 
you know, were, were plagued with corrupt activities, et cetera, et cetera. Now, South Africa knew since 1998 that we're going to run into problems. So they had years in order to try and solve the problems we are facing currently. And, you know, not doing anything, not doing anything, having discussions about nuclear, et cetera. And then we built Madupi and Kusile, which to this day is not on, you know, 100% online due to, guess what? Again, corruption, maladministration, mismanagement, etc. Now we are faced with, I think, enough evidence that the corruption in ESCOM just continued, the mismanagement just continued, their sabotage, I mean, good coal is offloaded and the bad coal is taken to power stations. There's um, syndicates at, at the power stations making sure that, you know, there's interruption of supply, etc., etc. And, you know, what are we faced with today? We have a conversation about the ex-CEO of ESCOM, you know, writing a book and making these allegations. Um, and that, in, in, in fact, the, the chairman of the ESCOM board alluded to the fact that they're now going to investigate this. Our priorities are so skew. And what else is this uh, um, if it's not political interference? No one taking responsibility. And at the end of the day, uh, just like Nicole has said, who suffers? South Africans. Yeah, and Minister Pravin Gordon saying that if you can't do the job, you should step down. So can we expect the ANC government to step down within the next few weeks? Because this crisis is in its entirety self-made. It could have been avoided, but political interference and corruption, like you said, brought this about. Brendan, what would you like to add before I ask Nicole for some advice for South African NGOs like Alta? Thank you, Ilza. Well, seeing that we are having a conversation about ships, I would like to say that we do not have a captain. Our crew is inept. And most importantly, we do not have a map that will guide us in a direction that will lead us out of this energy crisis. So obviously, as you have alluded to, political football that is electricity in South Africa, we've got national elections coming up next year. We've heard a lot of statements being made by our leaders, by the executives in power, and this is in complete contrast with thorough expert advice given by energy experts to government. So it boggles the mind that our government you know, really just turns the blind eye when it is advised not to consider something like car powership. On the other hand, we also need to consider the issue of lack of planning. We can perhaps address this in, in subsequent podcasts, which I would love to do. But at the end of the day, we are in this situation because government failed to plan properly. And for the ruling party to remain in power, um, whether we like it or not, it needs to produce power to its, its, its voters. And it is, unfortunately, we are seeing this promise as car powership as the means to deliver power to the people. This is, is a far-fetched statement coming from our government, and it's simply not the solution going forward. Nicole, what have you learned from this struggle, apart from the fact that you can't really speak out in your own country about um, the atrocities in the name of supposedly bringing power to the people? 
So I agree with Brandon totally that planning is essential. And what I learned is that if we don't uh, demand planning from our governments, we will end up having an environment that is being destroyed. We're going to have very expensive energy tariffs and we're going to end up with emergency contracts that are very harmful for our country and our people and will not solve our main issue. So South Africa is uh, on the um, just transition package and there is enough investment coming into the country to generate energy on renewable energy and to generate a system that is, is stable enough. So it's about planning, it's about not um, bending politically to corporations that pressure governments to make decisions that are not good for the people. So what I learned is that communities have been deluded by these companies. Uh, fishers have been promised to be paid stipends for two years and now they are totally abandoned by the companies. Uh, and that's the same modus operandi that they have in different countries. So we have been talking to our colleagues from South Africa, from uh, Angola, from Dominican Republic, and it's always the same story. This company, we shouldn't just trust because they, they call themselves multinationals, they call themselves um, respectable and trustworthy and we should be very clear that the decision needs to be made what's best for the people and not what's best for companies. I wanted to ask you about uh, speaking to other uh, countries and um, people there about what's, what Car Powership is doing in the rest of the world. You've now mentioned Angola and the Dominican Republic. Are you aware of any other countries and is it all over the same thing that political interference takes place, corruption perhaps, and definitely procurement processes are subverted? In Lebanon, there is a journalist who wrote a lot of stories about how car powership in the Ministry of Mines and Energy, it's not this name in Lebanon, it's Mines and Water or something like that, um, how they are related, they're married to each other's sisters, cousins or something like that. So um, there have been different accusations in different countries of corruption. Uh, the, the countries where they are coming to are all Global South countries who need development and who use the facade of the need of development to let projects like this to enter. So what we should do is we should not um, take our need for development to accept anything. That is an important point. Brendan and Stefani, um, what would you like to ask Nicole? Well, I think maybe what support do they as a civil activist organization have you know the, nicole i mean just describing what you have been through and being you know as an individual being sued we see that in south africa as well what do they call it is a um a slap suit you know they, yes. they they try and silence you because you are telling the truth but where you are what type of support do you have in order to be able to have a voice, which is extremely important. Civil society and activist organizations are extremely important. And um, how do you get support? 
So we have been working sometimes to be the voice of the communities that are based there because they're really afraid. So since the beginning of the struggle, we have agreed to uh, get support from some people who are inside some departments or who are fishing there, but who are afraid of speaking out because, yeah, they have been, you know, intimidating journalists and intimidating all sorts of people who are working on this. So I knew about the risks when I accepted. And that's my role in the society as uh, somebody who doesn't live in the Sepetiba Bay to try to voice out uh, the needs when people cannot. But the fact that I'm being criminalized also led us to, you know, have expenses. We needed to hire a criminal lawyer because the lawyers that work for Adayara are all civil lawyers. They are not criminal specialists. So we had to uh, spend, you know, time and resources in hiring this lawyer. And fortunately, there are um, climate defender programs around the world that support and uh, networks that support exactly this kind of needs because slap suits, unfortunately, are very common in the world. A lot of people are facing this kind of issues. So I was able to ex uh, access some funds um, and that actually helped us to connect with other groups that are doing this work in other places. And that gives me strength. Um, journalists who have been intimidated, persecuted by car powership are very eager to tell my story. So right now I'm defending myself, but as soon as this is over, the story will come out. Um, and of course, for, in the lawsuit specifically, I had to name some of my witnesses since it's a criminal lawsuit. It's different than the ones we're used to questioning environmental impact assessments and so on, because it's a criminal investigation. It has interrogation and witnesses and so on. So my witnesses are so solid. They are so good. So I have two, uh, the current and the former president of the National Environmental Agency are speaking um, on my side. Then uh, I have also the most famous environmental journalists and very um, respected scientists. So I'm, you know, my side is very strong. And if I would be car powership, I would definitely uh, give up of this lawsuit because it will be, it will look very ugly for them. But yeah, it's still dangerous. I still can face prison time. I still can have my record made dirty. So I'm not a primary defendant anymore in the future. But that's okay because, you know, it's 30,000 people depend on this lawsuit. So I'm, I'm okay with it. But thank you for asking. Very, very brave. Brendan, any closing comments? Uh, not particularly, Ilza, but I do wish or I, I, I would really like to commend Nicole and Arayara specifically on the work they, they are doing over in Brazil. I can imagine with all the adversity, with all the negativity, and to some extent having having doubt about the way forward and just hearing the, the story from a different corner of the world, and it, it basically boosts us at Alta as well, knowing that fights like these are noble causes to take on. So, Nicole, it's lovely 
um, that we had this discussion with you and we can learn a lot from other organizations such as yourself. Thank you so much. Thank you. Stefani, last words? I really have a lot of respect and admire you, Nicole. But you know what? I find strength in the fact that we can have this conversation and can fight together to eradicate this type of, of, of things. And that on the positive side, we are fighting for a better country, whether that's South Africa, whether that's Brazil. And that civil society and activist organizations are extremely important in order to make sure that there's a democracy and that, you know, the rights of the people are looked after. But again, Nicole, hat off to you. I just want to thank you for the space because the hearing this and being able to voice this out and being connected with other uh, colleagues who are also facing this gives me strength. So thank you. I think the one thing that is also very important for South African listeners to take note of and to appreciate again is the fact that despite all the problems in South Africa and all the government's faults, we still have freedom of uh, speech. We still have freedom of the press. We still have a very active civil society and we still have an independent legal system. We can still take these matters to court and at least expect the courts to do the right thing. So lots of things to be thankful for. And Nicole, from my side as well, that's off to you and Ara Yara and good luck with your journey. And I'm sure we will keep in touch. And I hope to have you back on the podcast one of these days with good news, with the ship sailing into the sunset, with the marine life and the coastline um, restored and with people being given their dignity again, as far as the fishermen and their communities are concerned. Thank you so much for your time. Nicole de Oliveira from Brazil, the Arayara NGO, Advocate Stefani Fick from ATA, the Head of Accountability, and Brendan Slade, our Legal Project Manager. I'm Ilse Saltzwedel. This was an ATA Insights podcast. If you like the podcast, please share it with your friends. And if you like ATA's work, please do remember that we are crowdfunded and we are reliant on public donations. Go to ATA.co.za to help us create a better South Africa. 